Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your arrow flight. Visit BowTechArchery.com and check out the SR350 and the CP28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is my buddy Tucker Johnson. Now, Tucker is from Idaho. He was actually born and raised in Oregon, but he moved to Idaho. is an avid big game hunter, backcountry hunter, loves to ride side-by-sides, UTVs, things like that. Um, but he works for Eberly Stock, and if you guys don't know, they make amazing backpacks and apparel and shooting supplies and rifle scabbards and just insane amounts of accessories. In fact, I'm going to be ordering a new one for this fall, and I'm really looking forward to trying it out. And so uh, Tucker and I are going to be talking all about hunting out west. I want to hear a little bit about kind of where he grew up and how hunting changed for him because, I mean, he's always been out west, and actually for him, doing the traditional western big game hunting actually pulled him more east because he was in Oregon, and now he's in Idaho, and the terrain is just so much different. And when we think about western big game hunting, we're thinking about big mountain, mule deer, and elk, mountain goat, moose, bighorn, things like that. And he was hunting blacktail deer, and elk still, but in a totally different terrain, not the terrain you're thinking when you think of Western hunting. And so I'm going to talk to him all about that. I'm looking forward to it, and you guys will get to hear how we met, which was pretty epic, to say the least. So let's jump into this episode with Tucker. Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show is, I feel like, a longtime friend now, even though it's only been a couple months since we first met. But Tucker is joining me, and he's from Idaho. We got hooked up on a helicopter hog hunt in Texas. And after that, I mean, you know, when you get in a group of people and you can just tell who is like a stone cold killer in the outdoor world, (laughs) when we met, I was like, yep, this is one of those guys. We're going to get along great. So Tucker, thanks for hopping on, man. Absolutely, man. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you share with the listeners maybe a little bit about yourself? What do you do um, for a living? What, what kind of outdoor activities are you involved in? Okay. Yeah. Um, so my name's Tucker. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for, for quite a few years. And uh, when I got out, went to college and uh, ended up going to work for a company called Everly Stock. Um, and we make outdoor equipment for, for hunters in the tactical community. Um, and I shoot a lot of PRS, NRL matches uh, when I can, when I have time. And then obviously tons of elk and deer hunting here in the state of Idaho. I don't venture too far from the state of Idaho just because I uh, have kids and a wife. I'm busy. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, the outdoors, we do it all side-by-side stuff, hunting, all of it. Yeah. How did, how'd you get into hunting and the outdoor space? Is that something you grew up doing as a kid? Yes, absolutely. I grew, so I grew up in Southern Oregon, um, in a town called Klamath Falls. 
in a little tiny town outside of Klamath called Keno, Oregon, probably population 900 people. Um, my dad was from Southern California and he moved to Oregon in the, I want to say the early seventies. Um, and just always had a passion for, for hunting, whether it was with a bow or a rifle. So, um, I grew up hunting blacktail, mule deer and Roosevelt elk, um, which is, if you haven't hunted rosies, you owe it to yourself to go hunt rosies. It's, they're just another monster. And, uh, the first time you see a rosie laying on the ground, you're going to think, shit, I shot a cow. They're huge. Um, but yeah, I just, I grew up doing that. Um, and Oregon was an awesome place to grow up. Um, it, it's, it's changed quite a bit, obviously in the past few years compared to what it was when I grew up. Um, but the blacktail hunting was amazing. Um, and I remember during the rut, we lived pretty far out of town, um, out in the sticks and in the rut, you could, you'd see these blacktail deer walking down behind this Creek we had behind our house and you could just walk out there and slap them in the ass. They were so stupid. And uh, that's how I grew up. It was, it was just an absolute blast. Um, my dad was a diehard recurve hunter. So he was, he was a pretty traditional guy, killed a lot of blacktail. Um, I wish I had pictures of it to, to, to prove it to everybody, but we had rafters full of blacktail antlers. Um, and then we're all killed with a recurve. Um, Jeez. As far as my dad was con- concerned, like if you couldn't do it with a bow, why would you do it? Um, I, I took a different route in my hunting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say long range shooting. That's a little yeah, bit yeah, different. Yeah. Well, it was funny is like my dad bow hunted really hard when I was little and I was never old enough, you know, because I wasn't strong enough to pull a bow back and kill anything with it. So I rifle hunted. Um, well, my dad got hurt really bad when he was working as a police officer. And, uh, so he kind of got out of bow hunting and went back to rifle. hunting. Well, I kind of followed him in that path, you know, because, you know, we didn't have a lot of money and it was pretty expensive, you know, to get, go set a kid up with a bow every year when, he, when he's growing so much. Um, but I, I grew up in that lifestyle. Um, and it was, it was different when I, when I grew up, it was, um, you weren't killing to kill something for what it scored. You know, you didn't care about that. You were trying to put food on the table because thing, it, money was tight, you know, yeah. and if you could supplement your income with, uh, with a couple extra deer and an elk a year, that means something, you know, Oh, um, it was, it became a way of life and, uh, granted I've kind of moved away from that because I definitely live in downtown Boise. I'm seven minutes from the Capitol building. So I'm about as urban as you get these days. <laughs> um, but I still love to hunt and, um, you know, you can hunt elk 20 minutes outside of Boise, which is a pretty amazing thing to do. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was an, it was a neat experience growing up in Southern Oregon. And, and during that time, at least I wish that my wife tells me all the time that I was born a hundred years too late. And that is the truth. I was definitely born a hundred years too late. Man, I feel that way all the time. And then I think about all of the other crap that you have to deal with. If you go back a hundred years, even just oh, like diseases and real basic stuff that we take for granted. Like me, I wear contacts. What happens if your glasses break back then? You know, like how long of a wait is it really before you can see again? That's the type oh. of stuff I'd be like, yeah, I don't know about it. You know, speaking of like my dad wears glasses and he's worn glasses since he was a kid. And I remember like, you know, packing up to go elk hunting and like my mom out there harassing my dad, telling him, you know, hey, are you, did you bring your extra two pairs of glasses? Yeah. And mom was an optician. Right. She made glasses for a living. Um, and it, it's, it's funny you bring it up. It's like, yeah, that, that was a real thing. You had to worry about bringing extra pairs of glasses just to go hunting. Yeah, for <laughs> real. That I mean, little things like that. I is why I'm glad that I wasn't born back then, but just the adventure of it, I feel like would be amazing. 
you know, um, I, I feel like that when you go to where I grew up, you step back in time, you know, because most of the folks that live down there are um, from the logging community or from the Native American community. Um, because we had, we had lots of Native Americans down there and, and loggers were a big part of my life. You know, I learned how to drive on an 18 speed Eaton transmission in the mountains of Southern Oregon. <laughs> um, and it, it's just a different way of life, you know, and they still live that way to, to, to an extent, obviously. I think that, uh, technology has definitely found Kena, Oregon. Um, but growing up, like, you know, I remember riding my, my grandmother lived with us when I was a kid and, uh, she was pretty old when she lived with us. She was in her eighties. And I remember her giving me enough money to ride six miles down to the little Kino store, buy her an 18 pack of Bud and a carton of Marlboro 100s, non-filtered and enough money to buy some penny candy and then ride that back to the house. And that woman smoked two and a half packs of cigarettes a day and drank an 18 pack of Bud a day till the day she died. And she died at like 87. So she is the toughest woman I ever met. That's um, funny, man. But yeah, it was just a different way of life. And, and I'm not that old. Though. I'm 33 years old. But so it doesn't seem like it's that long ago that it was still, I don't know, kind of backwoods, I guess. And I, I'm sure there's places in America are still the same way. Well, yeah, I feel like I look at it towards the future and just think of the stories that we're going to tell our kids, kids. And they're going to be like, you did what? Are you kidding me? Oh. You know, like there's just oh. weird things that even for me as a kid, like, Dude, we used to ride our bikes everywhere, everywhere we went. It was, you know, you ride it into town, same deal. You go get the penny candy, you get a, a a blow pop or Tootsie Rolls or whatever you can find at the local store. And I look at it now and I hear of kids that are eight, nine, ten years old and they don't ride bikes. Like they've never really ridden bikes. And I'm like, what yeah. do they do? Just all they do is play video games. I remember oh. getting a Super Nintendo. It was the coolest thing ever, but also I wasn't giving up my BB gun. I was still going to kill everything that moved. I was still going to ride my bike through the woods with my buddies. So, oh no, absolutely. You know, and I when I I had uh, so when I met my wife, my wife had um, had a son from a previous relationship, and uh, Donovan was ten when we met, and you know, obviously he's not my son, so I don't have a whole lot of say in how he's raised. Um, you know, and he had video games and all this and all that shit. And I remember when Mary Kate and I had, um, our first son Duke, um, I told myself, I'm like, there will never be a video game console in my house ever. Like, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I will. And I've stuck to my guns and I, I, he's six now and I, I will not allow it. Like you would, there will be no video game console in this house as long as I live here. Um, and you know, I've had people say, well, what if he gets behind the times and, you know, he doesn't understand how to use these electronics. So be it. Yeah. Um, he'll know how to hunt. He'll know how to fish and he'll know how to fend for himself a little bit. Yeah. And I don't I, know of anybody. The computer, at least in the way I think. Yeah. I don't know of anybody who's like, man, if only I had played more video games as a kid, I'd be in a better position in life. And I'm the same way. My wife actually looked at me. I used to play video games, you know, like growing up back when like the Sega and then PlayStation and Xbox, like I grew up when all that stuff was coming out. You know, I'm only a year older than you are. And right. it's it was fun. 
don't get me wrong, but one day it wasn't that long ago. She looked at me and she's like, can I just tell you, I am so glad you don't play video games. And I was like, wait, what? And I'm like, where did that come from? She's like, I hear about people whose husbands, like they get home from work and they just jump right into their video games and they'll play for hours every night. And I'm like, yeah, I guess that's kind of weird. I have never really thought about it as a grown man with kids, but oh, there's yeah. a lot of people who do it. The uh, I've, I've, you know, obviously I have friends, but uh, I've gone over to a few friends' houses. Obviously, they're different than I am. And we go over for dinner and their husbands are playing video games. And I'm like, really? Like, this is a thing? You play video games when you have company? It's kind of weird. Yeah. You know, to me, you know, I'm like, granted, I I automatically think like beta male bitch. I mean, <laughs> I apologize for the French, but like that's what I think to myself. Um, and that's probably not the case with with most with most people. But uh, I'm like, we're we're playing video games right now. Why why would we do that? Let's let's uh, have a conversation about literally anything. I'm down for it. Um, it's shocking to me that people are like that. It really is. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I look at I look at me. I I love movies. I love like watching movies. If if I'm going to just chill out and like not do anything and just do something completely mindless where I don't have to think, I'll watch a movie. But I look at my friend group and I would I would say that out of my probably 6 or 7 closest friends, only one or two of them and I have ever watched a movie together. Like it's just not what we do. Not what we do for fun. Like we yeah. don't, we don't Agreed. just go to the movies. We don't rent movies. If we get together, which we do every Thursday night, we get together, sit around a fire. We work on a vehicle. We take the boat out. We have a couple drinks, have a smoke and just chill and hang out as dudes. And so yeah, absolutely, that, that's just what we do. And I mean, most of them are hunters as well. Oh yeah. No, no. I think that's important. Like, uh, um, I try to involve my kids and, and, and at least try to involve them as much as I can in everything I do. Right. Obviously there's things at their age, they're six and two that they can't do. Um, but like I, we always have, you know, like Friday night fires, um, at our place, basically when hunting season kind of rolls around and I always put it out to everybody at work, like, Hey, it's Friday night. We're having a fire tonight. Bring your own booze. Let's sit down, have a good time, have a conversation. And I involve my kids in that. And they sit out there with me till two in the morning while I drink beer or I drink proper 12, which I think I'm currently drinking right now. Um, and that's fine. You know, like they should, I feel like, so I have two boys, I have three boys, but I have two of my own. Um, and I think that boys should be around men. Oh, for sure. You know, um, and I have uh, Greg, our marketing director, which you you guys see on or you would see on all of our videos. Um, he comes over every once in a while, and, and I love having Greg over because he's just a manly dude, you know. And uh, he doesn't have kids; he's not married, and you know he's just kind of terrified of kids. But it's funny to watch him interact with kids because he's not talking to them like they're kids; he's talking to them like he's talking to me. And I yeah. think it is hilarious, you know, to watch. <laughs> What are you doing, you little shit? You know, like, <laughs> um, and I think that's good for for kids to 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 see how men interact with each other. Um, yeah. and, and same thing, like working on a car. 
having a drink, playing a, you know, playing poker, anything like that, right? Yep. Uh, is important, especially when they're little, because I think that you kind of steer them in the right path, <laughs> unknowingly steer them in the right path. Yep. No, I I completely agree with that. Um, and it's cool. Like I look back and in some of my best memories were with a male role model like that. And I'm sure it's like that for you, you know, going out and learning how to hunt from your dad. That was me. I mean, I would go and sit with my dad, sit with my uncle, sit with my male cousins in the woods before I could even hunt. And then once I was old enough to, you know, I was out on my own doing exactly what they taught me in those hours of sitting on a tree stump or a bucket in the woods waiting for whitetail to come through. Absolutely. No, that is, um, and it, growing up, um, my dad was, he was there, but he was not there because he was, he was a, he was a police officer. He was a sheriff's officer. Um, so he was, he was a busy man. Um, and so when he was there, the one thing I can, I always, I take a lot of pride in is my dad, like he wasn't around a lot because he was working, but when he was around, it was go as hard as you can. Like, we're going to play as hard as we can. We're, you know, like, Hey, I've got, you know, 18 hours off, we're going fishing and you're yep. fishing for 18 of those hours. You know, like he just goes as hard as he possibly could. And I look at myself now and I'm like, shit, I don't know if I can go that hard, you know? <laughs> and so, and I have two boys instead of just one, I'm an only child. Um, and so like when I get a hold of Duke and Hank, my youngest, who's two, um, when we get in the side-by-side, we're going to go somewhere. It's like, we're going to go as hard as we possibly can. I'm going to be dead in like 20 minutes. We're going to go as hard as we can for 20 minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, my dad, my dad, he was gone quite a bit too. He drove truck over the road. And so when he got back, I, I feel like that also contributed a lot to me just wanting to be athletic, be good at hunting and shooting and you know i every time he would come home i'm like dad look how far i can throw this ball or look at how good i am at shooting my bb gun or look at all these birds i killed and my mom would hate that because you know i shot him off her bird feeders but he would he's just like loving every minute of it when he came back um but it's it's very interesting to see the dynamic shift in the amount of people who are okay with not raising kids like in a manly way or being that role model for them you know yeah you know and um my wife is always always supported teaching them how to do the most monotonous like something i take for granted right like changing the oil in my truck right yeah Yeah, for granted i really do um but my my oldest son donovan you know before he so my oldest son moved to, to southern california his grandparents are are getting up there in age and they need some help and he decided, screw it. When I graduate, I'm going to go down and live with my grandparents and take care of it. I'm like, that, that's admirable. It really is. Um, and so he did that. And before he left, you know, um, I taught him how to shoot. I taught him how to drive. I told him, taught him how to take care of his own vehicle. Taught him how to change a tire. I mean, simple things like that really separate people in this world. I've come to realize. Um, because if he decided to call me right now and say, dad, Hey, I'm driving from Southern California to Idaho to visit you guys. I wouldn't worry about him one bit yep. because if something happened, he could handle it, you know? Um, and, and that, that, I take a lot of pride in that. Like that, that's a good thing. You know, oh, you absolutely. should teach your kids, how, even if it seems so stupid, like changing the oil, you know, like um, my, it's funny. So when I had my boys, Duke is all about mom. 
like that kid loves his mother more than anything in this world, um, including dad. Okay. Um, and it was kind of, kind of shitty, you know, I'm like, shit, well, shit doesn't even love me, you know, like he doesn't <laughs> want to spend any time with dad. It's all about mom right now. But my youngest, my two-year-old Hank, he is all about dad. And I laid underneath my side-by-side for like two hours one night. Um, it was a brand new side by side. I had no idea how to work on it. You know, it was YouTube and white claws is how I fix shit. <laughs> um, and, uh, I'm changing the oil and, and changing the transmission fluid and, and working on a few things. And he's two years old and he laid underneath that side by side in hundred degree heat with me the entire time. That's awesome. Uh, I, I remember getting up, I kind of took it for granted and I'm like, that is awesome. That's, that's amazing. Like he's two, but he learned something. Yeah. And then I think that more dads need to take a step back and realize like, it may seem so minute, a little tiny thing that you're doing that seems so routine, but you, you just taught your two-year-old how to change the oil on a, in a, in a side by side. <laughs> yeah. No, my kids, it's cool. It's cool to see them already like without me having to tell them like, Hey, hunting is cool. Hunting is fun just them seeing me doing these activities or seeing me get all dressed up in camo and throw my duck calls on or grab my bow. Like every time my kids get in my truck, they want to blow on my predator calls. I've got a lanyard full of all my, all my rabbit squeals and rodent squeaks. And they always want to blow on them. When I've got duck calls, they want to do it. When I take them for bike rides, cause I'll, I'll ride around and they'll like surf sideways on the crossbar that connects the seat to the handlebars and like surf sideways and hold on inside of my hands on the, on the bike. And we'll ride around through the woods and they'll be like, dad, dad, a Turkey, you got to shoot it. You got to shoot it. And I'm like, well, it's not quite how it works, but they're so pumped up about it already. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like, uh, I, I know Duke, uh, for example, uh, you know, I disappeared to go elk hunting for a week. And I don't think he equated. I think he thought that four-legged animals were fair game. It really didn't matter what four-legged animal, as long as they had four <laughs> legs. Um, and I'm going elk hunting, and I would message my wife on my uh, um, GPS, and then she'd be like, "Duke says that Daddy's hunting goats." I'm like, first of all, I haven't drawn that tag yet because it's just. <laughs> I'm not that lucky. Thanks for rubbing it uh, in, dude. Second of all, that is awesome. And maybe I will draw that tag one day, but it was always like every time it didn't matter what I was hunting, whether, you know, ducks, geese, turkeys, elk, deer, daddy's hunting goats. <laughs> um, I always got a kick out of that. That's so great, man. Speaking of drawing tags, did you draw anything this year or did you put in for anything or did you just buy over the counter? Okay, so uh, in Idaho, um, I, no, I did not draw anything that was special. Um, but in Idaho, we have some tags that are kind of sought after, and they're a first-come, first-served tag. So they'll release like 700 tags online, and they'll release like 700 tags um, in person at, at stores across Idaho. Um, and one of them is the, the Sawtooth, Sawtooth B tag, which is the rifle tag, and then the Sawtooth A tag is the archery tag. And I think they released 1,400 of each. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's a pretty pretty good guess. Um, so I ended up snagging a Sawtooth B tag, which is uh, probably about an hour outside of Boise up in the, the Sawtooth Mountains, which are, are steep, very steep. Um, 
for rifle season. Um, and then, then I think that most of the guys that bow hunt at work got the uh, sawtooth a tag for archery season. Um, so we're, we're pretty stoked about that tag. Um, I apologize right now. Amazon is pulling up my house and they may interrupt this. Hey, uh, that's all right. We'll do an unboxing video on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was probably my wife's stuff. It's probably not even hunting related. It's probably oh, dog. Yeah. Forget it. Um, but I got that sawtooth B tag. I'm really stoked about it. Um, I haven't got to hunt that unit in quite a long time. Um, a buddy of mine um, that I hunt with every year, his name's Elliot. Um, he got the same tag, so we'll do it together. Um, and it is, it is a really miserable unit to hunt. It's it's three units compiled into one. So in Idaho, we have. So the deer tag's really funny. So you can buy like a general season deer tag, or you can buy a general season whitetail tag. The general season deer tag will allow you to hunt whitetail in certain units or mule deer in certain units. Um, and then the general season whitetail tag is whitetail only. Um, and then there's obviously units that are closed and open during the hunting season, and whether it's archery or rifle or muzzleloader or whatever. Um, it, Idaho is really confusing. That's what I've come to realize. It's, Oregon is way more simple in this, in this fact. Um, anyways, um, but the cool thing about it is our general season deer tag overlaps our elk tag. And that entire unit that we're hunting for elk is open for general season deer. And there is a nice. mon monster um, mule deer up there. So it's kind of cool to be able to hunt for both of them at the same time. Yeah. Do they, do they run the non-resident or out-of-state tags the same as they do? Like the tags you're talking about where they offer some in-store, some online? Or is it a different they, process? They, I want to say that the, the out-of-state is all online. Don't quote me. Um, but I want to say out-of-state's basically all online. And there's, there's fewer tags available for out-of-state hunters for those first-come, first-served tags. Okay. And, the, and the sawtooth unit is not the only unit that does first come first serve. There's a lot of other units that do it as well. Um, as a general rule, if you're on top of it and because they'll, they'll basically say like, I can't remember what it was. It was like June 18th at one thirty in the afternoon is when we're releasing the tags. So you're sitting there at one twenty nine ready to log in. As soon as one thirty hits, you log in, grab your tag, pay for it and you're done. Um, most of the time you can get in there and get a tag if you're really on top of it. But if, if you wait five minutes, they're gone. Yeah. How this year is the first year in several years that we have leftover tags for out of state residents or so what happens is if we have leftover tags, um, because there's a certain quota that we have for tags for out of state hunters. And if not all of them are bought, then they are reissued and um, in residents can buy them. Um, okay. So like here, I grabbed a, uh, a spare deer tag. So I've got two deer tags, two general season deer tags, um, which will be awesome. I get to hunt deer for till I get to hunt deer until December, I believe. Nice. I can't remember what day. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and there's a lot of cool units that are archery only extreme late season. Um, it'd be a blast, it'd be an absolute blast. Um, the one thing I can tell you, if you are interested in hunting Idaho and you're unsure of how our tags work, um, I, I don't know if you guys have, or if you've ever heard of Eastman's hunting journal. Yeah. 
So they developed what's called Tag Hub. Okay. And that is a great resource if you're an out-of-state hunter trying to figure out what units to put in for or what units are first come, first serve or what units are, you know, over-the-counter tags for non-residents. So I would encourage anybody to go to or to use Eastman's Tag Hub, tag hub for that. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I've been I've been thinking about branching out to different states. Like I really do want to start hunting other states. Out west, I've done Colorado and Utah so far. I think that's it. Well, I've tagged along on a hunt in in Wyoming before, but I didn't have a tag myself. And so um I definitely want to start exploring other places. And Idaho is freaking crazy beautiful. Watching people's videos up there where they're going after elk or even wolves like the fact that you guys actually have a wolf season there is pretty amazing and that is very high on my bucket list um but yeah pretty, i want to come check that out i uh so wolf hunting in idaho i don't think it's year-round it's damn near year-round um yeah. last time i checked you can buy eight tags holy cow um again don't quote me on any of this please go read your regs yeah <laughs> uh, Tucker but, said on yeah. the podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah, we need to put that disclaimer in there. Um, read your regs. I am not a fishing game guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we, uh, last time I checked, it was eight tags. And then we have, I cannot remember the name of the organization. Um, I apologize for that. But we do have an organization that if you're a member of that organization and you kill a wolf and you turn it in and do all the proper things they require you to do they will pay you money for killing that thing Jeez. up to like twelve hundred dollars dang yeah so um i'm a member i cannot remember what it is basically what happens so my buddy that i hunt with he is the tag guru i just basically show up at this point yeah um because you know he's single has all the time in the world and i don't um so Elliot is a guru of, of tags in Idaho and he grew up here. That helps. Um, but he signed us up for both for, for this organization. I can't remember what it's called. And it's basically kill a wolf, turn it in, get money. And you can't beat that. See, if I killed one, just because I don't have access to wolf hunting all the time, if I killed one, I'd have a hard time turning it in. I want a freaking awesome rug or I want like a headdress deal. When I say turn it in, Basically, it's you're running it down to fishing game. They're taking some samples off of it, and you're calling this organization. I cannot remember the name of it. I want to say it's I like Idaho Conservation Group. Um, and you're basically just proving to them that you killed a wolf. You get to keep it. Oh, it's yours. Oh yeah, I'm all about that then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Take twelve hundred. And and the cool thing is, is they adjust how much money you get per wolf according to the hunting unit you're in. So if you're in a unit that is really, really hammered by wolves, like on our elk, like, so the elk population in unit 39, which is right outside of Boise, I believe was decimated by almost 30% because of wolves. Damn. Um, that, that is a huge unit. And there's a ton of animals. In it. Um, it's a general season unit. You can buy general season deer and elk tags for that unit. Um, it's tough hunting because there's a lot of Idaho residents that go there, but it's a great unit. And there's tons of game. Um, but that, uh, that elk herd took a massive hit because of wolves. And because if, so if you kill a wolf in that unit, you'll get more money for that wolf. Dang. 
but you gotta you gotta really pay attention to what units you're hunting in and how much you get for those wolves but they they'll pay out i think the minimum payout i've seen is 200 dollars, which is still like i'll take 200 dollars for killing a wolf dude i would pay 200 dollars to come kill a wolf so right i know um i'll have to i'll, I'll send you a photo um at some point but uh, i've got a photo from over in la grande oregon so la grande oregon's about two hours um west of boise um and i have a good friend of mine that that owns pendleton ammunition and he runs steve's outdoor adventures on oh, tv yeah. yeah so steve is a really good personal friend of mine um and he has a massive amount of property in eastern oregon and he has a ton of elk on it and they have a wolf on there called the bfg and i'm sure you can figure out what that stands for <laughs> Um, anyways, I've got a photo of his footprint with my hand next to it and I've got pretty, pretty big paws and his footprint is bigger than my hand. Holy cow. Just massive wolf. I'll send you the photo. Uh, honestly, I think I would post it just to show your listeners like how yeah. big these. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're not a small dude at all. Like when I met you, I was like, dude, he's a big, I mean, you look like a freaking man. Uh, you're you're a big dude bearded like you look like you can hold your own yeah uh, my beard's a little shorter since the last time we met yeah, I definitely lopped some of um yeah god i think when we went down to texas and that was definitely like the height of like manly growth like serious beard you know i i when i remember going down there like that was a wild ride going down there like i got i, I had a, a guy come into my store said hey we're looking for a vet to go on this this hog hunt and i'm like all right well let me talk to my wife i'm missing my son's birthday you know i would totally do this but i gotta talk to the wife you know talk to the boss and my i called my wife and i told her what it was about and she's like if you don't do this i'm gonna be mad and i'm like all right i'm doing it and then i get down there and you know the, the group of people i went with that was running that tv show um dna outdoors or whatever it was great people um, and then meeting you and then with all the helicopter guys, like I was down there for what, four days. I don't think I slept in four days because all we did was kill hogs 24 <laughs> hours a day. Yeah. Like it was insane. A lot of, it was a blast. Dude, I, I've talked to guys in, in Louisiana and me and you, I think need to hook up and just go kill hogs again. Guys, I can't believe it, but we are one month away from season openers all across the country. And if you're like me, you're finalizing your gear list, getting last minute preparations set in place, and a few things that you cannot forget are a good rangefinder and a good set of binoculars. Or, best of both worlds, the two combined into one. Vortex offers their line of Fury binoculars with rangefinding capabilities and applied ballistics built right in. I'll have mine around my neck from the mountains of Utah to the north woods of Wisconsin in every trip in between. So if you're ready to get serious about your last minute prep to increase your odds this fall, check out what's new from Vortex at vortexoptics.com and head to your favorite Vortex dealer to make sure you're ready for everything fall can throw at you. Oh, it was it was so much fun. And I, I've i got videos, but the videos don't do it justice. Like when we're creeping through the field at night with suppressed thermal ARs and uh, suppressed 22 
caliber Glocks like <laughs> that. It, you just don't understand until you're in the moment and you're walking up to hogs and then they run straight at you as you open fire on them. How cool was the hog call? Yeah, when dude, you, the Fox it, Pro. Oh my gosh. Yeah, dude, like that was the highlight of that whole trip was watching them call hogs in. That was awesome. It was yeah. like hunting coyotes to me. Yeah, exactly. Except these ones you can see because, I mean, I had never, I had done a little bit of like night vision and thermal hunting uh, for coyotes before with zero success. But when we went out and did that, I was completely hooked. I came back. I was like, hey, babe, just a heads up. I'm going to be buying a thermal soon uh, because Missouri actually recently offered or opened up a short amount of time throughout the year that you can actually use thermal and night vision for coyote hunting. That's amazing. Yeah. I wish they would do it all year long. Maybe not during deer season because I know how that would go, but the rest of the year. I think, uh, I think in the state of Idaho, it is basically open year round. Um, we have, you have to get a night hunting permit. I okay. do know that. Um, I don't think you have to take a class. We do have, like, if you want to be a trapper, you've got to, you got to take a trapping class. And I, I think that there's some other classes you got to take. They're just really weird, obscure classes you have to take. Um, but it's pretty much open year round and it is getting more and more popular. Um, in fact, I did witness. Um, so in the state of Idaho, we have depredation tags. I'm assuming Missouri probably has the same thing. Yep. Um, so the way depredation works in the state of Idaho is you basically call in and get on a list. And when your name's up, they call you and say, Hey, meet this farmer at such and such a place at such and such a time. And you're going to go kill this, you know, and whatever that is, deer, elk, whatever. Um, and they did a depredation tag and a friend of mine from work did it. Um, and he's the, I believe he's the head editor of Guns America. Um, anyways, um, he went out and did it. And he, I think they asked or somebody, one of his friends asked like, hey, can we do this as a thermal thing and shoot him at night? And I think Fishing Game was like, yeah, sure, go for it. You know, we don't care. And so they went and did a thermal elk hunt at night. Oh, and my gosh. Like, it was crazy to watch. Like, they're shooting unsuppressed rifles. Unsuppressed you know, with muzzle brakes yeah. at 200 yards and they're dropping elk and they had to kill. I can't remember how many they had to the cull out of this one herd, but it, it was like probably 12 or 13. And it was like two guys and they just got after it. And those you'd shoot, you'd shoot them and they didn't even know what was going on. They just stand there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, I mean, it's cool that the agencies will allow hunters and farmers to work together to take care of problem animals like that. Like here in Missouri, I, I don't know that we have tags where it's like, hey, you can go and hunt with this person on their farm or like they're going to call you to come shoot this. But we've got landowner tags. So if you if you own land, you, I can't remember how many you get per 20 acres. But like we used to we used it's to rent a house. Very, very... Oh, yeah, we we rented a house on 230 acres and. Uh, I put in for landowner tags and I would get like eight deer tags a year and I didn't have to pay for them. And then I would get additional ones for archery season here in Missouri. I mean, the deer are everywhere, but I, right. I, I feel like once 
they become a problem and they're eating crops or they're damaging property or they're killing livestock in the case of the predators, like it's good that the fish and game or wildlife agencies recognize that and give us additional opportunities to take care of that. Oh, no. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. We like, so in Idaho, we have our landowner tax. Um, and then you have the depredation hunts as well. Okay. So the landowner tags are completely separate. And, you know, there's another niche thing about Idaho that probably not many people know. We have landowner tags that are, we have units that are inside of Idaho that you have to have landowner permission to hunt because their ranch is so big that it encompasses an entire unit. Jeez. So you have to get permission first, prove with a letter that you have permission, and then you can get that tag, which is, is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's wild. That is definitely not an issue that we have here in Missouri. No, no, no. And and, and I think that the reason being is because Idaho is, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, if you look at a map, I mean, Idaho is definitely not as big as some states, but it's it's pretty damn big. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet you we have more square feet if you made it all flat because there's a lot of it that's steep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm. It's always it's always intriguing to me to think about like going to a new state like that and trying to make a hunt happen. Uh, what was it like when you went from um, from your hometown hunting blacktail deer or Roosevelt to Idaho? Is it that different of topography? where you're at now versus where you were then. And then like, how, how is the hunting strategy changed? So hunting in Southern Oregon, um, my farthest shot 150 yards max on anything, deer, elk, whatever. Um, and then you come to, because just because everything's so thick, right? You're hunting these, like where I hunted Roosevelt elk, you're hunting them in the middle of an old growth forest. Um, and it's really trippy. And that's why I tell people you got to go do it because you'll be walking through this forest. You'll come across a tree, like a, a Doug fir tree in an old growth forest that is, you know, 10 feet across the base. They're huge. Um, and it's just, it's impressive to see. Right. Yeah. Uh, and these Roosevelt elk are huge. Like they don't, obviously they don't have the, the antlers that Rockies have. Right. That's why Rockies are so popular. Um, but when I say that they're, they're the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the elk community, they are huge. They are absolutely massive animals. Um, the last Roosevelt elk that was that that uh, that I killed in the state of Oregon, um, I killed it, and we killed two bulls at the same time. Trippy story. Two bulls fighting, right, and they're just sparring back and forth, and they're pushing each other out back and forth behind this big pine tree me and my dad are up on top of this mountain and me and my dad are sitting down next to a log um just eating lunch literally bullshitting and i think my dad is in a red and black flannel shirt no shit and um you know like i was shooting a i think i was shooting a, a an ot six and dad was shooting his 270 that he hunted with for years he still hunts with it i built him some nice shit he still hunts with it um but anyways <laughs> these two bulls are fighting and I, I, I hear something when we were facing away from them, probably about 125 yards away. I'm like, dad, do you hear that? And he's like, yeah, what is that? And I, I'm, I'm like looking around. I look behind me and I'm like, yeah, there's two bulls over there sparring behind that tree. 
He's like, no shit. And he turns around, he sees him. He's like, oh shit. All right, we've got to kill one of them. Um, and he's like, hey, you shoot first. If he pushes that big bull out from behind there, it was a seven by seven and a raghorn five by five, basically. So that raghorn pushes that big seven by seven out from behind that tree. I let him have it. He hits the ground like a pulled axe deer, not wiggling. That six by six runs around in front of the tree and stops. And my dad goes, well, shit, if you're going to stand there, boom, shoots him. My dad shot him four times with that 270. And he put all three bullets in a group about that big right in his pump house. And took him three shots to kill that that bastard. Like, they're extremely tough animals. Um, Anyways, fast forward. We're getting these things broke down to get them off the mountain, right? And a good friend of my dad's was the head meat cutter for a butcher shop in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And he comes up there to help us butcher these animals out and he says that seven by seven is bigger than any beef i've ever cut in my life like massive animals um i mean their feet or their feet i can't the the, the screen doesn't do it justice they're they're huge yeah um but anyways and like my seven by seven he's he's not if you look at him you're like oh yeah he's seven by seven he's a royal you know but you compare him to a Rocky, you're like, oh, he's not that big. And it's like, yeah, but you should have seen what he was attached to. Yeah. (laughs) They're huge. Um, I wonder, is it, do you think it's because of the foliage that grows? I mean, with how green and how thick it is or what causes them to get that big? I think it's because they have, obviously they have as much food as they could ever want to eat all the time year round. And they're just hard. They're really hardy. And they handle really harsh winters, I think, better than Roosevelt's do. Um, You know, Roosevelt's deal with some pretty shitty stuff. I mean, they're all over Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, all those all those states and that have harsh winters. Um, But I don't think a lot of people realize how nasty the winters are in southern Idaho or in southern Oregon, I should say. Um, The snow up there is is brutal. I mean, it, it is really brutal. I would compare it to idaho or colorado or montana it's just that nasty um and i think as a whole they're just a hardier animal than than a roosevelt now i could be completely wrong i'm not a game biologist by any means um but in my experience they just handle that that shitty weather better um and they're huge they're big strong animals um i know a good friend of mine from idaho he drew a tag in oregon killed a rosie and he shot a spike and he was like tuck this spike was bigger than any spike I've ever killed in my life. It was huge. It was like, it was like kill, like killed a branch bull, but with spikes, um, they're massive animals and they're impressive. I encourage anybody to try and hunt them um, because it's intense because you'll, you'll be in this really thick old growth forest. And I mean, you don't, you can't see farther than a hundred yards in any direction. And you'll get that sixth sense of like, Oh man, it's elky. Like I can smell them. Like they're around here. Yeah, And you'll catch a little bastard sneaking out behind you 50 yards away with a massive rack and this huge body and you can't hear him move. <sighs> you know, like you can't hear him go through the trees and they're so conscious of where their horns are or their antlers, I should say, because they've got an eyeball looking back at their antlers and they're dodging branches with their antlers, just weaving their way through that old growth forest. And they're a trippy animal to hunt, man. They really are. Yeah, that'd be cool. I've seen I've seen a lot of videos of uh, the black-tailed deer hunting up there, 
And that's always intriguing to me because I've never seen any deer respond to a call the way that blacktail deer do, like does and bucks. And when they, and with it, gosh, when they do that fawn distress call, and all of a sudden these deer just come sprinting straight at you through the woods, uh, that's oh, something I want to experience too. It, it is um, yeah, blacktail, like so. And I, I can believe, completely honest with you, never called a blacktail in my entire life. Not once. Like that was not something you did, at least where hmm. I grew up. Um, I'm sure there, there were people that did, but we didn't. Everything was spot and stock, find them, you know, and lots of walking, lots of walking. Um, and I always refer to blacktails as the crackheads of the deer world. <laughs> um, because Christ sakes, man, like you think that you've got them figured out, the wind's in your favor. They turn their head around they get a glimpse of something that remotely doesn't look right. And they're six States over before you can even blink. Um, they're extremely fast. I would almost relate hunting blacktail. I was actually talking to uh, the guys from annihilator broadheads um, and they're diehard bow hunters and they hunt Southern Oregon and Northern California for blacktail. Like that's their guys trip. Um, and they're like hunting blacktail. He's like, he says it's the most general adrenaline rush you'll ever see. He's like, I will never go to Arizona and hunt moose deer ever again because I can come to Oregon and hunt blacktail and it's even worse. <laughs> you know, they're just, you know, they get a whiff of something. They're gone. They don't wait around to look what it is. They're just gone. Um, and the crazy thing is you'll hear the first two steps and you'll never hear another step after that. That's so interesting. It's funny because like I've hunted blacktail in Alaska and the deer there are completely opposite. And I'm sure different places, uh, they're going to respond differently even within Alaska. But on Kodiak, they were the dumbest animals. And it was almost like, is is there a challenge to this? Like, this is way too easy. I got yeah. out of my tent in the morning and there was, I bet you I had 20 to 30 blacktail within sight and within rifle range of my tent when I woke up. And oh. even after I shot one, it rolled down the mountain and all the other blacktails watched it roll down and then they went back to eating. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? Well, you know, and, um, I, Casey, our head photographer at work, uh, he said the same thing, you know? And I'm like, that's just baffling to me. Yeah. Um, uh, because blacktail where I grew up, or they're not that way. You know, they get a hint of anything's out of sorts and they're gone now, except for the rut. During the rut, they are the dumbest thing walking yeah. the face of the earth. Um, you can walk up and slap them in the ass. I've done it. It's 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 a thing. You it can be done. Um, and they, yeah, that's the other cool thing about Oregon is like yeah, we have a lot, lot of blacktail, but we have some really awesome mule deer hunting. Um, and the mule deer over there are the same way, man. They're not afraid to run away. Um, yeah. They are not going to stick around and find out. They really aren't. Um, and the, and the mule deer in Idaho are very similar to, to Oregon in that respect. Yeah. Once, once you did make that switch, once you bumped over to Idaho and started hunting there, I mean, what were the big differences that you noticed as far as how you pursued game, how you pursued deer, how you pursued elk? Um, obviously like glassing, I'm sure came into effect when you can actually see more than a hundred yards. Absolutely. I, I uh, when I first moved to Idaho, so I got out of the Marine Corps and I came came to Idaho, didn't know anything about the rules or where to hunt or anything like that. You know, 
Um, and my dad hooked me up with a neighbor of his that grew up here and has probably drawn every sweet tag you can get in the state of Idaho. Um, he's killed two sheep in the state of Idaho. I don't know anybody else that's killed two. Um, but anyways, his name is Marty. Old guy. He's probably about 71, 72 when I met him. Um, and the biggest thing, like he took me hunting down the Owyhees, which is south of, uh, it's in the southern part of Idaho. It's the Owyhee mountain range. Um, it's real big, open, high desert country. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is similar to hunting Eastern Oregon, you know, big rim rocks. You're walking rim rocks, looking for tines, looking for big bucks laying down. Um, and that was the biggest challenge to me. It was like, okay, the entire state for the most part, at least where I hunt is that way. Now, if you go up to Northern Idaho, you're going to get into thicker country where you're going to be doing less glassing and lots more walking, trying to find something. But at least down in, in, in basically the middle of the state down is glassing is king, right? Get high and, and, and glass. Um, and I'll never forget, I bought a brand new pair of loophole binoculars when I got out of the Marine Corps, eight by 32s, absolutely worthless in Southern Idaho because you just, you need more. And now yeah. I hunt with 12 by um and i'm gonna switch over to sig 16 by whatever they are the image stabilizing ones um just because you need that you know i never knew that a spotting scope was a thing until i moved to idaho yeah uh, found myself using a spotting scope every time i went out whether it was scouting whether it was hunting like i had a spotting scope with me on a tripod and then learning how to shoot part of the reason i got into prs and and the national rifle league was to be comfortable shooting at longer distances um, because it's very likely that you're going to take a 500 plus yard shot on a deer, even if you're working hard to get close just yeah. because of how the country is, you know, um, it's big stuff. It's really big stuff. It's, it's intimidating. It really is. Um, I met a guy grew up in Idaho. Um, he came to work for a company for a while and, um, diehard hunter great elk hunter, great bow hunter. And I asked him one day, I was like, Brad, I'm like, how do you hunt this state? And he's like, get high in glass. He says, it's not hard. Just get high in glass. Well, it's not hard if you can get high because it's, it's, it's steeper than shit. In yeah. the state of Idaho. <laughs> um, but I really switched, I would say in the past two or three years, I really switched my hunting game and, and my hunting partner too. Um, because he hunted a lot up in Northern Idaho hunting whitetail and it's a different game up there just because it's so thick. And I told Elliot, this is probably two or three years ago. I'm like, you know what? Big binos, a tripod. I don't give a shit if I have to carry extra weight, but that's what it's going to take to find these animals. And I, we were glassing animals up at probably a mile across uh, two canyons glassing yeah. animals, and then figuring out how we're going to make a, a hunt to get over there. You know, and that basically meant hiking back down the way we came, getting in the truck, driving 15 miles or 20 miles to get at the base of the mountain they were on the side of and then hunting up there and trying to find them. <laughs> you know, like that, that's, that's what it took. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot of work. Um, I think that a lot of wives think that we go out in the mountains and we just, you know, hunt, hunt for four hours and sit around the campfire and drink. And it's like, I haven't gotten back to camp till 10 o'clock at night because we've been out till, you know, we had to drive six more hours to get close enough to go find them. And then, you know, maybe make a shot, maybe not. And then we finally get back to camp at two in the morning. And then all you want to do then is just die. Yeah. 
the level of exhaustion and sleep deprivation and just like beating the crap out of your body western hunting is no joke i mean i i haven't even done like well i can't say that as far as elk go i haven't done the like you know 10 15 miles back in there up and down mountains constantly but even just riding on a four-wheeler on two tracks and then going a couple miles in like there is there is nothing in the east that i've found that's even close to it you know oh. i would equate i would equate just hunting animals out west to like dragging a deer after you've already killed it up and down the hills in wisconsin like it's that level of physicality before you even get meat on your bag it, it, it really is, you know, and I, I got to hand it to the guys that can go out and train for this because they're, they're, I'm like, I am not by any means the best hunter in the state of Idaho, not even close to it. I'm just an average guy that's trying to go out and, 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 and fill his freezer. Um, but I start, you know, I, I hike year round because that's what it takes to go into these units and, and kill stuff. You know, like yeah. I hike year and I snowshoe. You know, that, that photo, I think I emailed to you of me. I think your, 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 one of your emails to me is like, send me a photo that we can use on the gram. Yeah. And that was a picture of me snowshoeing for fun. Nobody should snowshoe for fun. For fun. That, nobody should do that. Um, I feel I like snowshoeing with, is a survival tool, not a right? recreational tool. Right. Yeah. We're out there snowshoeing um, mountains at 6,000 feet elevation and three feet of snow for fun just to stay in shape enough to go kill an elk the next year. Um, and, you know, and that's why I tell people that, you know, when I have friends from back East that come out here and want to hunt, I'm like, all right, go get on the Stairmaster for two years and then we'll talk, <laughs> you know, because yep. a, you're at a thousand feet above sea level um, and you're going to come up here. We're going to start hunting it at 5,000 feet and you're going to die. And that's yep. the truth, you know, um, and elevation I don't care how in shape you are. If you're not used to elevation, it will kill you. Yeah. You know, um, I had uh, the, my good buddy, Mike, I was telling, I, telling you before the, the show started. Um, he's big, jarhead Marine, um, rugby player, the biggest thighs you've ever seen in your life. That guy is a train. Um, he comes out here and we get up at elevation and i'm looking at mike you know uh, 200 yards down the mountain going what's what's the problem but what 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 happened here and he's like dude i, I don't have any oxygen left I'm like, <laughs> i know but didn't i tell you to stay on a stairmaster for two years before he came yeah. out did that? <laughs> um well, i found that's how i found it kind of interesting i i saw it on shark tank of all places i don't know if it popped up on the actual show or if it was just on like instagram or something but now they've got like that boost oxygen which is basically a water bottle with an oxygen like mask that you can bring up in the mountains with you to help fight altitude sickness or or elevation poisoning or whatever you want to call it oh well just buy one of those before you go to colorado you should be all right bud. oh man it's dude it's no joke i it took me probably nine months to get acclimated. And I was just in Fort Collins. So, I mean, we're talking around 5,000 feet, but coming from 900 feet, I went out there and I was playing basketball twice a week in the mornings and I'd have a headache for a day and a half afterwards because of the lack of oxygen my body was getting. And it wasn't for probably nine months that I quit feeling those effects. 
And now that I've been out of Colorado for three years, I'm afraid what this year is going to look like going back in and trying to yeah, no, hike an elk no, out. You might as well just go down to your local like army surplus store, buy a gas mask and then just run forever with it. Yeah. Get used to that. And then get ready to still be out of breath when you go to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> truth. Truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's the biggest difference is just wide open spaces, man. Like, um, Idaho's a big place, you know, may not look that big on a map, but like vertically speaking, it's a big place. I mean, it rivals, it rivals Colorado for sure. Oh know? yeah. And, uh, um, I'm fortunate enough that I, I get to hunt it all the time because it is gorgeous. It is, you know, I, I've been to Colorado. I spent a lot of time in Colorado and even to me, you know, maybe I'm a little biased, but, uh, there's places in Idaho that, that are just as good, if not better. Um, and I think it's intimidating to a lot of hunters when they get here. I ran into guys from California that came up here on a whim and there's down by their truck, slamming water by the truckload and pull up and you check on them, you know, Hey man, how's your hunt going? And he's like, dude, I, I can't get to the top of that mountain. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Good for me, but yeah. you know, I, I feel your pain, buddy. Um, and they're just not prepared for it. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing that you can do for yourself as a Western hunter is prepare yourself for, for steep and for high elevations. Um, and that goes for anybody if you're from the East coast. You need to do yourself a favor and get your ass in the gym and start putting the work, um, to just try and barely keep up with your guide that lives there. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to my buddy, Brian today. Uh, he's kind of a flatlander Midwestern guy like me, but he goes out West hunting elk every year. And he's like, dude, leading up to elk season, uh, I talked to the gym owner at the gym that he goes and works out at. And he's like, dude, I just asked if I could leave my pack there because I would load two or three plates up in my pack and just go incline walk or do the stair stepper. And he's like, that's just what you have to do. And I've heard plenty of other guys that are like, dude, find the steepest trail that you can go and hike close by you, throw a ton of weight in your pack because even though like stair stepper is going to help, nothing nothing will fully get you ready for the actual hiking environment stepping on loose rocks you know some of those mountains are so steep you go up two feet you slide back one and you just do that all day long until you make it oh yeah oh yeah you know and um the other thing that i think that kills guys is side hilling on soft ground like we have a lot of um in the state of Idaho, we have a lot of decomposing granite so it's like sand yeah uh you have mountains made it out of this shit. Um, and you're side hilling for, for miles going around something, trying to get up to where you need to be. Um, and like I wear, uh, I think the last year I hunted in Kenna treks and it's like everything I can do to get my ankle support is uh, as tight as I can get it. Yeah. Um, so that I put my ankles in the first day of the hunt, you know, and you need those things for the next nine days or more. Um, and it's just, it's not conducive to, to unpreparedness. I should say, you know, like you've got to prepare yourself and walk on an uneven terrain. Like I tell guys all the time, like walking up a trail, ain't going to do anything for you. Yeah. Go pick the same mountain and walk up the side of it where there is no trail. Yep. And, and, and strengthen all the stabilizer muscles in your ankles and your knees and your hips and in your back, carrying all that weight. Like don't walk on a trail, go find the, the gnarliest, steepest shit you can find there is no trail up and walk up that about a thousand times. Yep. 
Yeah. I mean, it's true. The, the stuff that you get over there and that's not even getting into deadfall and stuff, but there's all kinds of stuff that you got to deal with when you hunt the West. But at the end of the day, you're going to suffer and you're going to want to go back. Like that's, I I don't know how else to describe it. Like you are going to have the most miserable and most amazing time of your life hunting the West. Um, dude, I know we're coming up on an hour here in I want to thank you for hopping on, but we are going to do a follow-up to this because I want to dive deep into what your pack looks like. As you get close to your hunts coming up this year, we need to hop on another call and hear all about the gear that you bring out, how you get prepared for a single-day hunt, a multi-day hunt, and, and inform the listeners on the equipment that they're going to need if they're going to come out and try to do that same type of hunt. No, absolutely. I would be more than happy. And, uh, um, I've got your cell phone number now. Yeah. So you, um, but I will definitely let you know when we start to get closer to those dates and we can put something together and, and hop back on here. And I'd like to do something like right before I leave on my elk hunt. So I'm like extremely prepared. Yeah. Um, that way we can tear apart the pack and, and we can kind of go over it and I'll get my wife's car out of the garage. So we've got some room to work in here. Nice. Yeah. That sounds great, man. And hopefully, I mean, we're going to be coming up through your neck of the woods here soon, so hopefully we can get together. And if not, we're going to have to uh, meet up down in Louisiana and get on some more hogs. Oh, I'm 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 down for killing hogs. I already built a gun for it. We're ready to go. Perfect. Well, dude, Tucker, Sounds thanks good. again, man. I appreciate it, and uh, you take care. Hey, you too, buddy. Thanks again, man. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed that because it's always fun to chat with friends about hunting. I mean, even if we don't dive into super technical like tips and tricks and strategy for chasing after big game animals, sometimes just having a BS session and hearing about how other people do it, there's a lot of really good takeaways. So I hope you guys did take a lot of stuff away from that conversation. But I'm really looking forward to picking his brain and hearing Coming from a guy who works for a company that makes some of the sweetest backpacks for hunting and camping and shooting and things like that, I'm curious to hear more about how he packs his bag, the kind of stuff that he's putting in it. And with some of their systems, you've almost got two different like compartments that can both be removed or more so that you can pack in your base camp stuff and then dump that off and still have your full day pack for going out and hunting throughout the day already set up and ready to go. And so I'm really looking forward to, as we get closer to season, sitting down and talking with Tucker again. And hopefully I can catch up with him when I'm out west and maybe do one of these podcasts in person. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Hopefully you guys are getting ready and fired up for western seasons to begin or eastern seasons wherever you are i know there's hunting seasons that have already started which blows my mind but thanks for listening and until next time get out there and chase a new adventure